The Critical Care PRN is dedicated to fostering the role of critical care pharmacists as essential members of the multidisciplinary patient care team. The Critical Care PRN's goal is to optimize drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, including how to become a member, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that website is critprn.accp.com. Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast, a partner of the ACCP Critical Care PRN and a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. Wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. So today is June 1st, well, actually June 2nd when this will get released, and nominations for the 2023 Pharmacy to Dose Awards are open so we'll start off this episode going into the awards, what nominations consist of, um, and then very, very excited to officially announce the four podcast partners. Um, and as I, as I work to grow the podcast, expand the things that, that this can do, I needed some help. And I have enlisted some unbelievably awesome partners, um, and they are in alphabetical order, uh, Tori Arsenault, Brooke Barlow. Anthony Hawkins, and Sylvia Stefanos. Now, later in the episode, these four will get the introduction they deserve. But briefly, so Tori's the creative director for the podcast. She's going to help with graphics, art you're able to see. Um, she gives me feedback. She creates things. You know, we're from infographics, education boards. Um, even though Tori might be a little more behind the scenes, uh, she's absolutely essential. Now, Brooke Barlow is our social media superstar. She's going to talk to the listeners about social media, highlight fantastic posts or information, and help incorporate social media into future episodes, right? Bring that onto the episode and vice versa. Bring more of the episode onto social media. Um, Now, Anthony Hawkins, uh, in addition to being the conference correspondent and fluid steward, uh, he's going to help bridge the gap between academia and bedside practice, whether it's precepting, new education or teaching concepts. Um, and he's going to do this all in his role as our faculty liaison, right? Everyone has a, a faculty liaison and he's going to be ours. Um, and then last but certainly not least, uh, Sylvia Stefanos is our research rock star and uh, she'll be giving research tips and tricks um, to be able to help both uh, early and seasoned pharmacists. And the ultimate hope that um we're able to create or design some research projects or ideas from the work we're doing on the podcast. So uh, Brooke, Anthony, and Sylvia will be on the podcast later highlighting uh, more about one piece of what they'll be doing in their role, kind of introducing some of like their longitudinal what they'll be doing on multiple episodes throughout the year. So stay tuned for that. But anyone that knows me knows I love a good celebration. A big birthday guy, love a good gathering. So the next rational step was combining my love of celebrations and my love of the pod. And the Pharmacy to Dose Awards were created. So there will be 10 awards. The listeners will be voting on nine. The last award will be a surprise. More to come. No spoilers, obviously. Um, So what I want to do here is highlight the different awards 
and go through the nomination requirements so that we're all on the same page. Um, so just FYI, all the things I'm going to go through, the nominations are on a Google form. It's, it's very, very easy. You're going to find this on social media at pharmacy to dose in the episode description, as well as on the, the uh, website pharmacy to dose.com. So, um, all the award categories, nomination requirements and things, those will be on the Google form as well. They're going to be tweeted out, uh, put out on Instagram, all these kinds of things. So definitely be on the lookout. So what are these awards? So we're going to go in order, right? They have, we got one through nine listed. So let's start publication of the year. So which publication was the most meaningful or impactful to your practice, right? We do the literature review series on here. So we talk about lots of new articles. Um, so published between June 1st, 2022 and May 31st, 2023. Now, it can be published in print or e-published or online ahead of print. As long as one of them happened in that above time frame, you're good. Um, now, critical care or emergency medicine articles are preferred but not required. Preferred but not required. Um, and the award will be given to the first author uh, unless uh, otherwise, otherwise requested. Now, mentor of the year. Uh, this is the pharmacist that did the most through giving back in a mentorship role. Um, I think anyone that's had a good mentor, myself included, when you have that, you understand the incredible impact it can have. And I think this is an award um, that is going to be able to recognize people uh, for their truly awesome work that might not get reflected in publications or national committees and things like that. So as you're working on this submission, firsthand accounts of mentorship are preferred. What do they do to stand out? What are examples of their impact? Maybe how did they help you, right? What's a way where they went out of your way, um, put their neck out, and or gave you really great advice, right? All those kinds of things. Put that in the message. Um, and if you, right, it's a strength in numbers. If there's three of you and you had three great mentors, boom, nominate them. Um, okay. So those are our first two. So number three is the conference speaker of the year. And I love this one because what this award is meant to do is it meant to capture the person that when this pharmacist speaks at a conference, you don't want to miss them, right? If you see their name on this talk, you're, you're talking with your friends, you're planning your schedule and you're like, yep, I, I can't miss this one. I got to be there. So why are they the best? What makes them stand out? Tell me why. If you just say, I like their talk, I, I need, we're going to need more, right? Um, they must have spoken at a, a 2022 or 2023 conference. This could be in person or virtual. doesn't matter. Uh, it's, you know, I guess you'd say January 1st, 2022 through 2023, what we are now. And the focus must have been on one of three things, critical care, emergency medicine, and or pharmacotherapy. Between those two things, three things, that encapsulates a lot of things. It doesn't have to be all three of them, just possibly one. So lots there. So kind of in the same realm as the mentor of the year is the critical care preceptor of the year. And I really like this because some of the best preceptors are some of the best units where you learn the most. They are so busy. They're so demanding that they dedicate all their time to patients in that unit, to learners on that unit. So outside of maybe that hospital, this person might not get the recognition that they probably deserve. So do you think you have the best critical care preceptor? Tell us why. Now, only requirement, you have to have a primary practice site of an ICU. Now, you can. this could be co-funded faculty, this could be full-time academia faculty, anywhere that has an ICU practice site is eligible. 
So the next award is the Tag Team Tandem of the Year, right? So we've talked about these awards and how literally people are going to give away, I'm not sure if I've said this actually, the the trophy is going to be a WWE title belt. So just like you, when your favorite sports team wins wins their championship instead of the huge trophy, they all get belts that they wear around, right? That's the theme here. That's that's the thought. So um, you'll get to kind of see an, an image of it when we get closer to um, the award show date. But uh, just know that they're awesome. And I, I thought it was, uh, I got some feedback that people enjoyed. Hey, if you're having a great day, that's exactly right. Wear it around your belt. I can't imagine the looks you'll get if you're if you're rocking the the trophy belt as you're as you go through those unit double doors. Um, but okay, award number five, the tag team tandem of the year. All right. So, are you best friends with another pharmacist at your hospital? Do you two work together to help improve the care of ICU or ED patients? Why are you the tandem of the year? And you meaning right this person and this other person. Right now, the only two big requirements, right? So it has to be, well, three, I guess, ICU or ED patients. Marriage or partnership is not allowed. So I'm sorry, lovers, right? Everyone knows when I when there are people that are married, they come on the pod. I always like to ask how they can work together. Unfortunately, this award is not for you. For better or worse, you guys got rings and things. The tandems need belts. And the only thing is they must work at the same institution. That's the other thing. So you can have a great friend, but if they're, if they're at a sister hospital or down the street, um, can't count. Okay. So the PGY2 Resident of the Year is the sixth award. This can be given to a current critical care or emergency medicine PGY2, right? In the 2022 to 2023 residency year. And the submission should show how they give back to the program as well as the profession, so whether that's locally, nationally, or otherwise, right? Um, and I guess the best advice would be, right, how does this resident stand out? Why are they different? Because if it's the same thing of like, oh, man, the research project is really great, the early to rounds, like, you know, be creative and show show why this resident's great, right? I think all of us that get to work with residents, we're so lucky. Right? You get to, We're working with the future, you get to to help impact them, hopefully in a positive way. And so um, I think the idea of being able to give back, recognize them for for the great hard work that they that they do each and every year, I, I think that's awesome. So resident of the year, I think is great. Now this one's a fun one. So the Twitter RX MVP. So who's your favorite pharmacist to follow on Twitter? Or if you say you want to pull up somebody on Instagram or TikTok, right? Well, maybe we we could talk, we can we can maybe shift the name just a little bit if we have to highlight a different social media platform, but you know, why are they the best? What well, makes you look forward to their posts? Do they have really funny memes that incorporate pharmacy things? Do they have great infographics? Do they have good tutorials? Do they have funny videos? What have you? Entertaining, informative. Did they start something new? Um, and the only thing to, to emphasize here is that nominees can be learners as well as pharmacists. So um, it doesn't necessarily have to be a, a licensed practicing pharmacist. It can be someone in training as well. The last two are the biggins. Last two are the biggins. So um, number eight is the People's Choice Award. And that's Podcast Guest of the Year. And this is simple. Which guest did you think was the best? Who did you enjoy listening to the most and why? So the episode must be published between January 2022 through May 2023, right? So not every episode, um, but quite a few. 
Uh, and if this if this guest was on multiple episodes, right, just pick the one that you think best represents them. Um, so I think there's a lot, a lot of awesome candidates here. So very, very excited for the People's Choice Award. And then finally, closing us out, the ninth award that you all get to vote on, right? All the nominees will get sent in. Once they get sent in, what we'll do, the podcast partners and I, if there are lots and lots of nominees, right, we'll try to use a objective criteria, narrow down to the top four, and then you, the listeners, are going to be voting, right? So this is an award given to pharmacists by pharmacists, which is going to be so, so cool. The last award is the Pharmacy Living Legend Award. You have to be practicing as a pharmacist for at least 15 years, right? And if in doubt, they probably have been, or if you're curious, just, you know, Include that that you may not be sure, um, but you know these are these are people that have have changed what we do in critical care, emergency medicine, pharmacotherapy. Right, so you need to have bedside experience as a pharmacist, but you don't necessarily have to be a bedside clinical specialist right now. You just had to have experience as one. I mean, you need to be nationally known as an expert in pharmacy and or critical care and. Ultimately, what you need to describe in your documentation is why is this a living legend? Why is every time you you sit in a person with this meeting, you learn something new? Um, why is it that, you know, uh, this person is able to talk you through some of the most complex things or they write some of the best editorials that you love, right? Whatever that could be. Um, so no matter what end of the, of the you know, experience spectrum you may be on from a pharmacist uh there are just so many awards that from from learners all the way to living legends everywhere in between can get nominated for so um a couple other things myself and the partners are not allowed to be nominated i think me not being able to be nominated is pretty easy that was a given um but the four people that we just mentioned right um tori sylvia brooke anthony um, they're ineligible for these awards. So uh, if you nominate them, that's great. I'll definitely pass those things along. I mean, give them the recognition that they certainly deserve. Um, but just being podcast partner and things, um, they will not be eligible. Now, what will happen? So you go to the Google form and you enter your nomination there. Now, the one of the best parts about this, no CV. Right, you do not have to fill in your CV when you when you fill out the form. So basically, when you click the Google form, and remember this can be everywhere, uh, this is the way that it'll look. You'll put in your email, and then they have descriptions of the awards, just like I'm kind of reading to you now. And then you're picking in a drop down menu what award you're you're picking, demographic info about the nominee. Right, where are they? Who are they? Um, a small bio about who is submitting the nomination, who are you, and then in at least 250 words, but no more than a 1,000, why does the nominee deserve this award, right? This is your elevator pitch. Why is this nominee the best? And then it is. there are a couple, maybe one to two other things, and that's it, right? And if you've ever submitted an award for, for a lot of other organizations, there are plenty of things that can go, that go into that. So we made this... Simple but detailed to try to get as much nominations and interest and support, but also make it so that, you know, we have the info to make the best decision that we can as well, um, that everyone can, right? All, all the listeners, right? Because you all have the all that info. So 
Nominations are open now through Friday, June 23rd at midnight Eastern. All right, so when this gets released, you're going to have three weeks to do this. And you're going to hear about this from me nonstop, but I think this is an awesome, awesome um, initiative and plan. I think we need more recognition for all the things that we do, and I'm happy to be able to be a part of that. The podcast partners have been working with me for a month or two now, so I'm excited to be able to officially announce the partnership. Now, three of the four partners are featured on the podcast because part of their part of their role um, involves a year-long piece on the podcast, focusing on specialties, right? Academia, academia and precepting for Anthony, social media for Brooke, and research for Sylvia. So one name is notably missing, and that is Tori Arsenal, our creative director. Now, Tori will be on the podcast but her role is a little different than the other three. Um, she works on creating amazing infographics, education boards, um, a lot of the graphics and art that you've seen me make, as well as some of the other behind-the-scenes things she's either helped create, uh, she's given me feedback on, um, she's taken a look at, you know, all these types of things. So I'm very, very lucky to be able to work with her and her incredibly creative mind. Now, a little bit more about her. Uh, Tori is an emergency medicine trauma pharmacist in San Jose, California. So after completing her emergency medicine PGY2 with the County of Santa Clara Health System, uh, she stayed in California. She's originally from Boston, right? Coast to coast. Um, Tori is passionate about trauma, resuscitation, toxicology, and harm reduction. Now she's the president-elect and newsletter editor-in-chief for QCSHP, and Tori's active on Twitter at RxToriArsenal, where you can find her creative clinical pearls and pharmacy education boards, which are just awesome. Um, and outside of pharmacy, uh, her interests include houseplants, gardening, coffee, and her cats, Kippy, Celia, and Kimchi. Uh, Tori, I probably butchered that second cat's name, so I'm very sorry about that, but um, excited uh, to work with Tori uh, as the creative director um, and let her, let some of that creativity uh, shine through the podcast. So um, you've already seen some of it, um, but you'll, you'll be seeing more, which is really, really great. Now, Brooke Barlow, social media superstar, joins me now. Uh, currently, the neurotrauma ICU clinical pharmacist at Memorial Hermann, the Woodlands Medical Center in Houston, Texas, you also likely know her from her Twitter account, at the AB of Pharmacy. She's also been featured in a previous literature review series here. But as a podcast partner, um, Brooke will help create and incorporate social media into the podcast. And I think with her creativity, the possibilities are absolutely endless. How, how did you like first get involved with the medical side of social media and how did you really, how, when did you decide and how did you decide to really kind of start leveraging um, that to kind of building your professional brand in a sense? Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Nick, for having me on the podcast. I'm so excited to work with you all and hopefully engage you within the Twitter space. Um, so as a disclosure, my Twitter account is actually combined with my twin sister, aka my partner in crime, Ashley Barlow. Um, she is an oncology pharmacist. Um, but yeah, so we kind of jumped into Twitter together. So what feels like ages ago to today, but we got involved in social media within our first, our fourth year of pharmacy school, actually, during our Abbey year. 
Um, so some might actually disagree with this statement, but to us, Appies were so fun and what an incredible learning opportunity. It was almost like everything you learned in the Zapiro textbook was like challenged, but in the best way, right? Because we know medicine advances so quickly and oftentimes faster than when we can like update a textbook. So with this newfound knowledge that we were learning on Appies and like trying to digest the massive amount of information we were getting on a day-to-day -day basis, we actually started to make, we initially made a blog together as a venue and a creative outlet to kind of like, you know, share and apply what we were learning with others. And most importantly, it was like that kind of educational piece we were really looking for. However, like with the blogging platform, if anybody's familiar, it kind of lacked like the real-time engagement that we were looking for. So we ended up discussing uh, with one of our previous preceptors and faculty members at Jefferson College of Pharmacy. His name is Dr. Robert Pulvez. He's an emergency medicine pharmacist and very active on Twitter. And he actually uh, titled one of the Pharmacy Times articles, um, How Twitter Made Me a Better Pharmacist, um, which I would highly recommend the audience checks out um, after this podcast. But he really did give us um, some great advice and feedback on how to use Twitter for educational purposes, professional development, and collaboration. And he felt like um, our creativity would, would lend very well to this platform. So I, as everyone else, may be very skeptical at first when someone says utilizing social media for professional education and medical education was like a big question mark to us. So that's why we decided to give it a try together. Um, so we did start, we started posting um, some of our, you know, kind of clinical pearls from our blog onto Twitter, as well as the pearls that we learned on rotations, you know, new articles that were recently published. And then at the time, we were also studying for our NAPLEX. So, you know, we included NAPLEX pearls into our Twitter account as well. So uh, since there, it's kind of just been like our passion for learning and education has just been further enhanced by the Twitter platform. And we're so grateful, again, to be introduced to this educational landscape as it has opened like so many doors of opportunity and continues to do so till this day. Yeah, it's it's funny you mentioned your APPE rotations because um, your your like banner picture right on your Twitter page is you all finding out your match where you were going as as fourth year learners. Correct? Is that am I interpreting the Believe picture not, progression? That was, that was actually the clinical skills competition at ASHP. Um, we had won. What was that? Twenty. 19 we won the national clinical skills competition at the ashp so that was like us learning that we that we won like first place <laughs> and i don't know how ashp got that progression of photos but i'm still impressed to this day that they got that <laughs> see now i need a progression of all the things of these photos if the bar is is that i can only imagine what <laughs> what some of these other accomplishments look like um but you <laughs> you you mentioned the um the article um, that, you know, your kind of former uh, preceptor mentor recommended to you, how Twitter's made me a better pharmacist. Um, the, in another kind of podcast interview where you kind of referenced that same article, you also talk about the ABCDEs of your social media presence. And um, I think it's important to talk about this because when we're thinking about from a kind of medical professional side of things, right? You probably going to do things a little bit differently than like the crew you go to the lake with, right? In July. So what, what do, what does that acronym stand for and how, what are ways that the listeners can kind of apply that to their like social media accounts and identity? Yeah, absolutely. So I think 
to a lot of people, the word like professional or digital branding can sound like quite an abstract topic to many of us, especially because prior to COVID, it was like your first impression was shaking someone's hand, maybe at a conference or at an interview, but everything has really been shifted to the virtual space. Um, and so everyone should purposely develop their professional brand online. As we know, your digital footprint ultimately like represents your reputation, right? And sometimes your online persona is perhaps the first and most important impression that you may make, like I said, especially in the era of virtual recruitment and interviewing, et cetera. Um, so, you know, we kind of created this acronym, the ABCDEF, to help think through building your social media presence. Um, so A stands for align your professional goals. So ideally, like I always tell people, you don't start creating a presentation or a PowerPoint without first developing your objectives. So ideally, you should think of your social media platform the same exact way. And making clear objectives and setting these goals will really help you before diving into Twitter. So for example, if I'm, I'm a clinical researcher in um, you know, critical care, and my goal is to advocate for my research and find collaboration opportunities, ideally your Twitter profile, the people you follow, will then align with those professional goals. So again, it can really kind of help you reduce some of the noise of Twitter by first developing those objectives. Um, so B stands for building your profile get creative here. Like this is your time to really show um, some of your creativity, what makes you unique. Um, so get creative with your Twitter handle. As mentioned, Ashley and mine is at the ABA Pharmacy. So our names, AB is Ashley and Brooke. Um, and the ABCs kind of showcases our love for education. And then of course, pharmacy as we're both pharmacists and we love to educate in the field of pharmacy. Um, so again, feel free to get creative. Um, add a professional headshot, a biography. I think one really cool feature of Twitter is the opportunity to include a link. Um, so this link, you can put really anything there, right? So maybe you, for you, Nick, you would include the link to your amazing podcast. Um, others who are maybe research focused can put their research gate profile on there or Google Scholar, whatever it may be, academic profile if you're, um, you know, kind of in academia. But this kind of really helps your audience they can, you know, go and learn more about you and your professional interests. Uh, so C stands for creating and curating content. This is an opportunity for you to really get that advantage of Twitter with the active engagement piece, right? That self-reflection, when you create content, you're learning as you're creating these tweets. And that was kind of, again, one of my favorite things as an Appy student, as a resident, and still today. When I create tweets, it's, you know, they have citations. I'm learning as I'm building and developing these tweets. So you can, again, find out what works best for you. Not everybody has to create infographics. We know they're a bit time intensive. Um, so maybe you are someone who just likes to post content about new articles or, you know, some of your professional accomplishments, et cetera. So really find out what, what works best for you and, you know, find out what you're passionate about. So D stands for defining your audience. Um, think about who you want to follow, but then also who you want to follow you, right? The key is to ensure you're able to find the content you're looking for, but also share your content with those that you're looking to engage with, which kind of takes us into the next one, which is E. Um, this is engaging in conversation. This is one of the greatest advantages of Twitter, is the opportunity to, number one, meet people outside of your own network that you have currently, um, and engage in some of the fruitful conversations that go on on Twitter about, you know, different medical-related topics. Um, you can engage by commenting, liking, and retweeting different posts. Um, of course, be mindful that whatever you engage with will show up on your followers' feed. Um, so just, again, being sure to maintain a professional presence while, with the content you engage with. And last but not least, the F stands for finding your voice. 
social media is so noisy. I'm sure we all know that. Like you jump and you're like, oh my goodness, where do I really start? And it can be really hard to figure out like, you know, how you're going to stand out. Give yourself time and grace. And once you find, you know, you get your feet wet and give yourself some time on this platform, you'll really be able to gain the value. Um, healthcare professionals are so valued on Twitter and we all love to learn from one another. We all bring something unique. So that's kind of finding your voice on Twitter. And I think the F can kind of be the one if you're getting into social media that can be a little bit intimidating because I think when you when you get on social media, right, it gives you the list of, you know, 10 to 20 medical accounts recommended for you, right? And typically those are some of the the people that have been doing this for a long time. So they'll have tutorials of like 20 tweets long or, you know, they'll have, they'll interact with every single person. And I think in the beginning that can feel intimidating, um, but I would say that, you know, don't let that stop you from kind of getting involved because, you know, you can, you can interact as much or as little, right? You can be, you know, they, they call it the, the lurkers, right? Who just like a lot of things. They, they save stuff, but they don't really tweet or post and things. And that's okay too. So kind of figuring out um, how you want to do things, I think is really important. Um, so really awesome Absolutely. job just going into that. And you, I, I found too in that, um, podcast episode that you were on, um, you kind of have this amazing infographic talking about building your brain through social media. So we'll be sure to retweet that out for, for the people to look at and see and kind of get into some of these, these tips and tricks. Awesome. Um, so we've kind of gone from like, okay, what is this? How can we use this to our advantage? Now let's kind of get into a little bit of like, let's hit a couple tips and tricks. What are things that we can do to help get the most out of social media? And maybe we'll start with a couple of things that are maybe probably a little more common to our seasoned users and, and, and then make our way into things that, you know, we might teach everybody about. Yeah. Um, so there are some really, I think, important things with Twitter to help you filter your feed. So, and also to help save things for later. So one of the more common things that I would say as, you know, medical professionals that we utilize, um, and my top tip would be utilizing the bookmark feature. Um, it's an excellent tool, kind of like, you know, a folder to store all of the tweets, articles, and infographics that you kind of want to go back and read later or revisit. And it really does allow for easy, quick access at any time with that bookmark feature. Another one that's very common to the social media user is hashtags. Um, I'm sure you may be familiar from other social media platforms, but hashtags are very uh, a useful tool to help filter your Twitter search. So I like to think of hashtags as kind of similar to like a PubMed search key terms. Um, so what are what is the content you're looking for? What it could what could it potentially be labeled under? Right. So if for example, if you're interested in infectious disease topics, you can search the hashtag ID Twitter. Um, and that can help you filter all ID-related content or hashtag NeuroTwitter for our neuro or neuro, neurocritical care colleagues. The most common ones used in critical care in the pharmacy space may be hashtag PharmICU, hashtag EDPharm for our ED pharmacists, hashtag TwitterRx, or even just hashtag MedTwitter. Um, and hopefully we'll include some in the show notes for some of the social media users yep. to get, um, you know, follow along with. Now, some of the more advanced ones that I think have been really helpful as you kind of continue to follow more people um, is the use of Twitter lists. So these are really good to have in handy when you want to better compartmentalize your searches on Twitter. Um, so think of a Twitter list as an individual Twitter feed based on a specific group, topic, or interest um, based on the people that you add to that list. 
So for example, I'm interested in infectious disease and you have like 10 to 12 key people that you follow for infectious disease content. So you create this list that's called ID content and you add those 10 to 12 people into that list. Now, when you jump onto Twitter, you're like, oh, I'm really interested in looking at ID content today. You go to that list and that's really like a specialized feed. You look through and that's from those 10 to 12 people and you can see some of the new um, information that they're posting. And again, helps to reduce some of that noisiness of the general Twitter feed that you may jump into. Now, another good thing about Twitter lists, you're like, well, I'm not really quite sure where to start with who to add. You can actually search Twitter lists. Um, so, for example, that other people have created, like Women in Medicine, that's one I, I recently started to subscribe to, added it, and it's really advantageous in identifying accounts that you, you may not already follow but are within your interest area. And then finally, the mute or block function. This one is so is very helpful, especially when you're trying to designate this as a professional Twitter account. So the block function specifically helps you control um, how you interact with other accounts on Twitter and can minimize any unwanted content from appearing on your Twitter feed. So you can block certain bots that may be commenting on your Twitter posts or those who may interact with an unprofessional manner. Um, so that's kind of the block function. Now separate from that is the mute function. The mute function is a feature that allows you to remove content um, really from your timeline without, you don't necessarily have to unfollow or block people, it just removes it from your Twitter feed. So you can maybe mute certain phrases like politics, sports, Trump, whatever it may be, that things that you don't want to see on your Twitter feed, but you don't necessarily want to block it forever, right, or never see that content, but just on a day-to-day -day basis, it's not something you're interested in seeing. So again, helping to reduce the noisiness of your, your Twitter feed can be super helpful. Yeah, for me, I blocked the phrase vitamin C for a while on my Twitter. <laughs> um, but uh, a couple things to to kind of add on to some of the things that, that you had mentioned. Um, in terms of um, like the bookmarks, I think that's one of my favorite things because sometimes you're scrolling on the bus or, or whatever and you don't have time to read that 10 tweet thread, right? Um, mm -hmm. And then not only... I like that you mentioned hashtags as a way to um, kind of find people. But if you're trying to tweet out articles and things, that's also for the inverse way. That's how people will be able to find you if you're using some of those. Like if you're tweeting out ID articles and you use that hashtag, um, that's a way that people can find you just as much as as kind of vice versa. Um, Absolutely. The, the, the trick that I learned um, a couple things that that to share. If you do a lot of hashtags, one thing that can make your life a whole lot easier is on your phone, they have keyboard shortcuts. So you can put whatever shortcut you want and you can put in every hashtag that you want to use after that. So that way you only have to type it once instead of every time you do something. So that that was a really helpful thing to me. And then the other thing, um, Brooke did a really good job highlighting like lists and groups and finding people from that way. The other thing you can do like if you know, hey, there are these three people that, you know, I work with, I like, I, I know their thoughts. You can kind of you can kind of steal from them a little bit and look at who they follow. And that can be a way yeah. that you can kind of see what their list is kind of fall because sometimes searching for people can be hard. So that can be a way, especially mm -hmm. as you start to kind of get figure out who who you want to follow, that kind of thing. So just a couple things from from the novice side, but a really good overview into kind of all the things that like we can do that, that, that Twitter and social media can give to us. Absolutely. Now, kind of the last thing I, I, I kind of wanted to, that I thought would be helpful to go into is 
what are some of the like classic examples of things that happen on social media where we can engage in, learn, and kind of connect with people? Um, I was going to say across the country, but it's really across the world. It can be everywhere. But what are some of those examples of things um, that are, I guess you'd say, semi-unique to social media of things that, that we kind of learn and grow? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one like Twitter specific one is tweetorials. Um, it's kind of a spin off the word tutorial, right? Which is basically it takes, you know, Twitter, your post is limited to 280 character tweets. Um, it can be difficult, right, to like kind of delve into a specific content with such limited characters. So the tweetorials, um, these can be super fun, engaging ways to learn more about a topic. And it kind of like digs into the why of certain topics. So Uh, One of my favorite was by Avi Cooper. Um, Him and Tony Brew are wonderful. And if you need somebody to follow for tutorial examples, there was other two to to do that. So he made one about, you know, why is dexamethasone used to treat cerebral edema, right? And it's like, hint, it is way more than just like the quote unquote, oh, it's anti-inflammatory effect, right? So um, super interesting. People can post pieces, of course, like would not violate any type of things, but including some treatment considerations and all that kind of stuff. Tweetorials are so fun and they include polling questions to kind of engage the audience throughout the tutorial. You can kind of like learn how much you know or either don't know about a specific topic. Um, and I oftentimes am bookmarking those uh, tutorials pretty frequently to like go back to and read from. So they're super fun. Other things are online journal clubs. Um, these are collaborative, like so when you think about the traditional journal club, maybe with students or residents, like you're stuck within four walls and you, we love to hear from our colleagues at our institution or students, but there's so many more perspectives out there, right? And even so you can learn from the actual researchers themselves, right? Like the primary author can sometimes be on Twitter and you can discuss this content with them. So it's so fun. You engage with other colleagues in the field. It's multidisciplinary. Um, and in some cases, like I said, may involve the author of the research. Um, and then a allows you to give targeted feedback like in real time. Otherwise, communicating with an author is like, you know, email, maybe six months later you hear back or it's a letter to the editor, right? This is just such a great example of being able to engage in real time. Um, Some other examples are infographics or visual abstracts. Um, So infographics, we know they're kind of visual representations of information that really helps it to be more readily digestible, like at a quick glance, right? Or visual appealing, they serve as great pocket guides and educational resources for either ourselves, our learners, or fellow colleagues. And I would say visual abstracts are, like infographics may target a specific, like overarching topic, right? Um, However, visual abstracts are more focused towards the research side. So instead of just reading an abstract, which can sometimes feel a little bit boring, um, you know, a visual abstract takes that content and puts it into a visually appealing, um, you know, little visual abstract. And a lot of journalists are starting to post these on their Twitter accounts. And it enhances, you know, your ability to again engage with that um, specific article and content. So those are just some, you know, fun examples that Twitter provides for us to learn um, in such a unique way on social media. Well, in the the infographics, you know, that's something that you, that um, you have mastered and do a lot of, and we all learn tons from. And so I think it's I've found because I don't necessarily consider myself a huge visual person, but I've found that when you're when you look at a trial and you can, you can hear it, maybe you read it, 
you hear someone else talk about, you see the infographic, you have these different ways of hearing, it kind of sticks a little bit better. And um, I mean, the infographics are just getting better and better, the things that are coming out now, because you, you create them for, for a couple journals, correct? Yeah, that's correct. So I serve as a visual abstract editor for uh, critical care medicine, as well as more recently, Chest has a new journal for Chest Critical Care. Um, So I serve as a visual abstract editor for both of those journals. And it's been so fun. Another great collaborative opportunity um, to, you know, create those visual abstracts and, and learn from you know, the authors, I'm kind of communicating with them in real time to create these visual abstracts. So it's been a great opportunity. Everyone go take a look at those infographics. I didn't didn't even know Chest had a critical care journal. So we're learning something new all day, every day. Um, (laughs) Now, Brooke, what are, if, if, you know, this was just the tip of the iceberg, right? We could have talked about this for two to three hours. So, um, you know, what's kind of like a, a parting message or places that people can go if they want to learn more, try to try to dive a little bit deeper um, into kind of the, the social media kind of um, medical side of things? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I would I would first just start off by saying I think we mentioned this previously, like uh, once you get started, do not compare yourself with others on Twitter, right? There is no numeric metric to your success on Twitter. We are on there to be educators or to educate ourselves. Um, and you really do. You find your own voice, let your passions uh, shine through. Um, and, you know, you eventually we will all develop that, you know, passion for education together. Um, there's no numeric metric to your success, no followers, anything like that. Um, so other things I would definitely say, uh, we talked about avoiding distractions. That's an extremely helpful for me to, again, help filter my Twitter feed. Um, and while it, is, it can definitely be appropriate to share personal things on your professional Twitter account, but always keep in mind um, that you only have one chance to make that first impression, right? So be sure to reflect on a post you're sharing. And if you don't think it's right, or, you know, you might be like, oh, I have to delete that later, then, you know, don't post it. Because remaining, e- like, maintaining that e-professionalism is key, you know, to maintaining um, your Twitter presence. So some great resources I would mention um, for the pharmacists. So there's been an abundance of articles published over the past couple of years on Twitter. But one that's kind of like tried and true and timeless is the one that's published on um, JCCP. So it's called To Tweet or Not to Tweet, a primer of on social media for pharmacists by Brent Reed and Dave Dixon. Um, it's really just kind of like a great overview on like Twitter for pharmacists in general. Um, there are some other good ones that kind of have some tips and tricks on how to utilize Twitter for medical education, and we can include some of them in the show notes, um, you know, for you to reference at another time. I mean, yeah, Brent Reed and Dave Dixon, uh, the DMV's own, um, anything that they say, we should listen. So that's def- definitely be a must read for for everybody who wants some more. So yeah, we'll 100% include a lot of that stuff in, in the reference list and things. And then, you know, um, I think it's exciting. The listeners are going to get to kind of um, interact and hear from you a lot more frequently. And we're going to be, you know, it's a little bit um, uh, in the air as to specifically everything that's going to be happening, but the overarching thing is going to be, you know, Brooke's going to be able to bring a lot of what's happening on social media to the podcast and vice versa. A lot of what's happening on the podcast to social media. So I'm excited. Hopefully you all are excited. Um, everyone be sure to follow Brooke and Ashley. If you have not the AB of pharmacy, and then of course, 
you're not following me, please do that at pharmacy to dose, TO to dose. Um, Brooke, thank you so much. I'm so excited uh, to work together and to um, really bring the positives of social media to the podcast and the medical world. Absolutely, Nick. Thank you so much. And I will say the Twitterverse is very friendly. So feel free to reach out to anybody. If you're just getting started on social media, you know, everyone is in there for a common goal. And we're, we're all happy to help and kind of get you started on, on Twitter. If you need, if you want to say hi to somebody, say hi to me. I'll always reply. I'll give you a like 100%. So you could start there and you can always, we can always grow up. So that's awesome. Thanks again, Brooke. Thanks, Nick. Our research rock star joins me now, podcast partner Sylvia Stefanos. Now, currently the PGY2 critical care pharmacy resident at the University of Colorado, uh, she will be an ICU clinical specialist at the Swedish Medical Center in Denver, Colorado, staying in beautiful Colorado uh, once her uh, PGY2 ends. So awesome, awesome. Congrats there. I mean, you likely remember her from her 2023 SCCM research episode, and you can find her on Twitter at Sylvia Stefanos. I mean, one of the projects she'll be doing with the podcast, like we kind of hit in the beginning, is having a year long discussion on the podcast regarding residency research. So, following the same general timeline that residents follow, Sylvia will give general overviews, advice, and tips or tricks for various pieces of the residency research project. And so where else could we have started than with considerations when selecting your research topic, right? It all starts with the topic. Now, for the listeners who are curious... I'm going to highlight a few of Sylvia's research and publications because there may be some listeners thinking, be like, wait, current PGY2 resident, um, wait a second. So uh, Sylvia has her PGY1 kind of more traditional residency research project published hot off the press in May of uh, this month, the Accept UTI study um, looking at empiric piptazo for ESBL infections, has also... Uh, two pharmacotherapy publications in 2023, right? Um, talking about the research um, that she was featured on the previous episode, restrictive resuscitation in patients with sepsis and mortality, right? The systematic review meta-analysis, and that's where everyone got introduced to TSA, the trial sequential analysis. I mean, she also uh, has an awesome article that we're going to f- uh, highlight in the April literature review series, but the management of non-cytotoxic extravasation injuries, right? Updates on medications, peripheral administration of vasopressors, hypertonic saline, and that's not even, we have, that's not, neither one of those papers is her PGY2 residency research project. So um, she is going to drop lots of knowledge for all of us. Sylvia, I'm going to stop blabbing, let you come on. Thank you so much for joining us and partnering with me. I'm very excited uh, to work together and see where this goes. Thank you so much, Nick. I am definitely super excited to partner with the podcast and collaborate with you and other members of the team. But like you mentioned, I've participated in a variety of different types of research and can hopefully provide some insight into what residents will encounter. It's going to be great. I've always, I've already learned so much, y'all, just from our meetings preparing for this. Everyone's (laughs) going to learn so much. Um, Now, before we dive into kind of researching and everything that goes into picking the topic kind of for your research project, What's the ultimate goal for a residency research project if we kind of look at that umbrella view? 
Yeah, that's a great first question. And I think the ultimate goal is to primarily give the resident experience in conducting a hypothesis-driven research from start to finish. And that's oftentimes the first time we'll ever be able to do that. So it starts with developing a research question, then you formulate a study design, collect data, analyze and interpret it. Um, so like I mentioned, some of us have never even written a research manuscript or conducted research start, start to finish. So the goal is to give the, the resident opportunity to learn that. And overall, um, being involved in research allows you to better understand the literature you're reading, to critically evaluate it, and hopefully one day contribute to it. So that I think is the biggest takeaway from residency research. But that also brings us to what most people might think is the ultimate goal, which is publishing. And for me, that was a personal goal I wanted to get out of residency, but it certainly does not have to be everyone's goal. Um, and I think there's more of a push for that happening now. Um, but going through the process, learning how to conduct research by making those mistakes and ultimately learning from them, I think is the biggest takeaway from a residency research project. Yeah, I mean, very, very well said. I mean, you also get the, you know, the the benefit of um, preparing and presenting, right, that kind of research at typically a major um, uh, conference, right? Kind of that national organization conference. And then when you kind of look in some of the literature, the other thing, and I think this gets at ultimately our theme of picking a topic, but it's that idea generation. And it's the theory about, you know, um, a resident being able to evaluate, right, that research idea and see if it's feasible or to be able to think of one themselves. And because that's mm -hmm. something, right, that, you know, when I'm thinking, when we're thinking of research ideas, it's really nice sometimes as a resident when you get a, a, a sheet in front of you with all these ideas. But when you're in practice, you don't have that, right? You got a blank Microsoft Word kind of flipping um, <laughs> thing and you're trying to figure that out. So getting the skills to pick that and to figure out, um, what is and what is not a, a really good research topic and question, I think, are going to be things that will help you further in life. Again, all boiling down to it comes down to the research topic and how important that is with mm -hmm. this research project. So there are two ways, generally speaking, to create research project. And I think the, obviously, there are, there are researchers who are listening, right? They're like, wait, wait, there are way more. But with residency research, they're kind of too general, like flipped and standard. So Sylvia, what, like briefly, what are these concepts? And would you say one is more common than another thinking in the um, setting of residency research? Yeah, and I think that's something I didn't really realize until I was interviewing for residency programs. But for almost everyone, the program itself will choose one method versus another. And like you mentioned, you don't necessarily have an influence on this. So it's for students or residents pursuing another year of residency is in the interview process, ask about what research model the program follows, especially if you have a particular interest. So we'll start with the standard. This is the one I have the most experience with. I would say it's the most common one. This generally includes a list of research ideas or questions that have been generated by preceptors. It can definitely range from just a title or a title with a write-up and a background that maybe addresses the gaps in the literature, has an estimate of the number of patients you'll be able to collect on. So it's a more traditional way of being involved in a project from start to finish. Um, on the other hand, you can have a flipped model. Um, this is one that, that I think more residency programs are starting to adopt. It's still fairly new. But what this means is that there's a research project idea that's been generated by preceptors and or residents from the past year. It has already undergone some sort of vetting. There's already 
been a lit- literature search done, a protocol development, and they even have a database developed that you can just jump right in and immediately start with data collection. Then in the second half of your year, you'll be involved in the idea generation and protocol development to be able to get the experience of all components of a research project. Um, and this, the idea is that you get maybe two projects out of your residency year as opposed to one. But a big draw to this is to also allow residents to have a completed project by the time December rolls around and there's all these conferences to present a full research project in. Um, there are definitely pros and cons to both sides. Um, in the standard approach, it can be a little bit more difficult to anticipate some of the barriers you'll encounter, especially if the ideas haven't been thoroughly vetted. But in the flipped model, you also have to pick up a project that may have already been flawed in its methods or maybe done in a way that you wanted to do differently. And you have to see it through to the end that way. And the, you know, I think one of the bigger issues is actually flipping which model your residency program uses. That is not easy, right? I mean, it's, you almost you almost have to realize you you have to flip it because a project goes so wrong and you have to like start over mid, right? So it's not like it's something that you can listen and instantly change. And so I think that's something else to keep in mind that, you know, because I'm used to the standard as well. It's what I've always done. And I think part of that is because switching from that requires either lots of preceptor or other uh, research interest to get that off the ground or, you know, uh, residents either having really, really good research getting tons out or unfortunately the other side of things, what we're trying to prevent, why you're here to help us prevent the bad research project, <laughs> the one that you're collecting data and you know it's futile, but you have to finish it anyway. And that's what we're going to prevent. That's what we're hoping to do here. So you the the big thing is understanding the timeline. And you mentioned right at this point where it's going to be the end of May, you know, it is what it is, whatever program you're at, there's no changing that. So once you have the timeline and you have an idea, okay. Um, and, and in this first month or two, we'll kind of focus on the standard, um, design for a little bit. The next piece is actually determining that topic. So what are considerations when picking a research topic? Like for example, maybe walk us through, you know, as you were going through your, um, uh, ideas, right, and figuring out or narrowing them down. How did you figure out if a project was feasible or not feasible, if it would add to the literature? Mm-hmm. What kind of process did you follow? Yeah, and that's a great question. And I think it takes a lot more initiative from the resident than I initially expected going into residency. Um, the first step is to critically evaluate the idea by looking at the PICO question that's proposed. If that's not a term that the listener has heard before, I definitely encourage you to look it up. But a PICO question follows all components of what should be involved in a research idea. So is it specific? Does it address all components of having a patient population of interest? Is there an intervention or exposure that you're evaluating? Is there a comparator? Um, This component isn't always a requirement, but it definitely makes the project more robust. And lastly, what do you hope to accomplish with the outcome? So sometimes it's up to you to determine if that PICO question can be salvaged or changed to be made a little bit better or robust, or if um, you need to accept the project or go with something else if you think it's flawed from the beginning. Um, The biggest thing to think about here is also feasibility, especially for a retrospective study, which is what most of these residency projects will be. So think about if it has significant limitations, like being so niche that you may not have enough patients to go back and data collect on, 
um, or rely so much on subjective data collection retrospectively that you know that the outcomes that you're getting may not be as um, dependable or maybe you're relying a lot on post-discharge information that you may not be able to gather. So think about what outcomes you're looking for and if it's feasible to go back and data collect on. Other things to consider more so depend on your goals. So especially if your goal is to publish, you have to think about what this study will add to the literature. Are there already prospective trials looking at your specific research question? If so, maybe you have to go in another direction. Or if it's mostly small retrospective studies, what new spin will your study add to that literature? Um, the preceptor here comes in and plays a big role uh, because they should have already thought about what's generally out there and available in the literature. But when you pick up the project, having a detailed literature table of what's been published will be your absolute best friend. We can definitely talk about that in episodes to come. Uh, but lastly, you may have noticed that I put a lot less weight on what topic of research it is, especially for PGY-1. Mm -hmm. I certainly prioritized having a project that was feasible and that addressed a gap in the literature as opposed to one that was more interesting to me but wouldn't be as robust. Um, so with that, I will recommend also considering maybe what preceptors or mentors you'll be working with especially if your goal is to publish, you may want to choose a project with preceptors who have a little bit more of that experience and success with publishing, not only to learn from them, but to have the support um, to see the project through the finish line. Let me break down a couple awesome points that, that Sylvia made that, that I completely agree with. And um, number one, the preceptor definitely has responsibility to ensure that this is the right type of project as well. But like you said, um, the ball is in your court as well. Like you can't, if the project doesn't work out, telling somebody that it was, you know, you got given the wrong project, it's not, that's not an answer that's appropriate. And so, you know, um, yes, sometimes, um, you hope that a, pre a project would be researched a little more things, but you have to you have to ensure that as well. You have a, a responsibility there to make sure that that works. So it's kind of a, a two way a two way street there. Um, other things to think about, like you hit on, right? Where will the data come from, and is it available? Because there's nothing more frustrating than um, trying to run data or meeting with these people, and then finding out that the the piece of data you need that's intricate to your project you can't get. And then you're back at the drawing board and it's November and you're trying to figure out what to happen. I mean, then finally the sample size, are you going to have to try to go through 10,000 charts to find the number of patients, right? Um, so making sure that, that this actually is feasible um, and you're not trying to deal with five and six figure uh, numbers of charts. Um, and you mentioned PICO criteria, Longtime listeners of the pod, that should not be a phrase that is a stranger to them. Um, Alex Flannery did a really good job highlighting some of these things. And he mentioned even his preceptors, they fill out the PICO and finer criteria, making sure those studies meet those. So everyone does that as well. Um, but the uh, one of the last things that I want to kind of hit on is what you mentioned of of the the area in which the research is done. And I think when you're a resident, if you have an idea of what you want to practice and you think your first year residency, you have to do everything in that specialty in order to match and get your new residency. And just remember your first years for general practicing. So if, if, if you have a research idea that maybe it's not in the, the, your field that you're most interested in, okay. If it's going to get you the best research 
experience, it's going to be the best question, the best chance for you to contribute positively to the literature. Maybe consider that versus kind of a me too study in the field that you might be interested in. So really, really good points. And um, all things to consider, I'm telling you, you can't spend enough time. I'm telling you, you can't spend enough time um, researching the topic selection because if if your topic is flawed, your research will be flawed. It just will. There's no other way around it. So doing the legwork up front will save you from having not a great time in January and February down the road. Yep. Great point. So, um, you know, I mentioned the practice-based research episode with Alex Flannery, and when he had talked about uh, research versus a medication use evaluation or MUEs, it comes down to generalizability. And basically the thought is that Research is general information that all of the critical care world could use, whereas the MUEs mm-hmm. is a knowledge about what a institution or a practice site can use. So I think there are residency programs who have research projects that are probably more in that quality improvement MUE type research. Let me be clear, those are extremely helpful and absolutely have a role but if we're thinking in the context of residency research, right, and you mentioned if someone's goal is to really publish, right, and to push and maybe gain research experience, is there a way um, at all that like residents can kind of build off of an MUE or quality improvement p- project and like actually maybe leverage and create another project and, and do that all in the setting of one residency year? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a great point to make. I'm definitely seeing more programs combine the two now since doing separate MUE and research projects can be time consuming. And we're seeing that residents are struggling to be able to complete both separately. So if your initial project or MUE has a more quality focus, and you realize that there are opportunities to implement changes based on current practices, then this is a great opportunity to turn it into a research project as well that you can tackle in the second half of your of your year. So there's a common misconception that quality or more internally focused studies don't contribute to the literature. But I think that if it's done well, it can certainly be helpful to your institution, but also to institutions across the the country. So one example of this is my co-residents from last year conducted an MUE looking at our use of carbapenems. And surprisingly, there is an opportunity to streamline appropriate use. So (laughs) they developed criteria for use and collected data that compared outcomes pre and post criteria implementation. And they were actually able to get two publications out of that project that other hospitals can not only use to develop their own carbapenem stewardship strategies, but it also showcased the clinical benefits from uh, that specific intervention of carbapenem stewardship. So it can help not only improve hospital processes, but can also improve patient care. And I've seen this done even with, say, um, pushing hypertonic saline or pushing anti-epileptic drugs. There is a more, I guess, more institution protocol development component of it, but also a clinical benefit. And that's a, I love that you gave an example because I think there'd be a lot of people who hear you say that and is like, "Mm mm-hmm, sure, I bet it could be. (laughs) So uh, shout out your co-resonance. That's awesome. And I like that you said, just because it's an MUE, you're right. That doesn't mean it doesn't contribute to the literature. Um, But thinking of the way for people to possibly, you know, gain more of that research experience. I love the idea of trying to get that, that two for one, the double dipping in real life. Um, So that's a really, really great advice. Now, 
what other resources are available that residents could kind of turn to for, for research help? Because, you know, we're going to give great advice here and things, but there's no way you could cover all the possible questions or, or considerations, right, in kind of a 15 to 20 minute discussion. Yeah, absolutely. And just fair warning for anybody going into starting the research project in residency, you will not have every resource available at your fingertips. You, <laughs> Your preceptors will not know everything. There will be a lot of roadblocks along the way, and you will have to find help either in YouTube videos or elsewhere to be able to get everything you need. But there are still resources within the pharmacy community that can help you and things that I didn't even know of going through residency myself. But the first one is the SCCM CPP Mentor Mentee Program. You have the opportunity to be paired with somebody who's already in practice, has a ton of experience with conducting these residency research projects. And this can be someone you can bounce ideas off of if you're stuck, or they can direct you to other tools that may be helpful or things that help them along the way. Um, the second is the SCCM CPP Pre-Peer Review Service. So I think this is a wonderful resource. Many of us have experienced that immediate desk rejection after submitting a paper, paper for publication. Uh -huh. So this peer review service will help you find the right home for your study. They'll review your manuscript, kind of tear it apart before um, the reviewers from the journal actually do and can optimize your chances of getting your paper accepted. So this is kind of a safe space to show your mistakes to people before it actually matters. <laughs> Um, the third is a biostatistics resource developed by the ACCP Critical Care PRN. I think a lot of us will say that statistics can be one of our weakest points going to residency research projects. Fact. So um, especially if you don't have the right mentorship within your program, because it's a very niche skill to have, there are resources out there on ACCP Critical Care PRN that can help you. Um, and lastly, an ACHP resource is um, kind of a module-based module resource for the essentials of practice-based research for pharmacists. It's an online program that's free for ASHP members. This kind of walks you through all the steps of developing a research project and completing one and publishing it. Um, kind of more just information module-based for, for your reference and to self-guide you through that process. And the the links to, to um, a lot of these things that Sylvia mentioned, we'll put in kind of the, the reference list for this. And, um, you know, some of them are kind of like this self-study kind of activities where you'll learn from home and you could kind of, based on what question you have, where right, you can go to the appropriate place. But then you highlighted this, the SECM kind of CPP resources and that those would be kind of more personalized, right? So you have kind of all the things under the sun. Um, and then, you know, we're focusing on right, kind of more of the uh, single center residency research for now. You know, in the future, we're going to have a little discussion on multi-center research, what that looks like. And there's a toolkit available um, through the ACCP Critical Care PRN under member resources. That's like a multi-center research toolkit that I think would definitely be a good starting place for anybody kind of looking looking there but a little bit outside the scope of the of the discussion today so sylvia kind of wrapping us up here when we're thinking of kind of picking a residency research project topic as this year begins as everybody's right starting to think of it right as as p4s are finishing going into that their first year they're probably thinking of their research project and stuff so what would you say is like if you had to narrow it down to some of three of like your your biggest points to re-emphasize what would those be 
Yeah, so to kind of recap what we talked about, I think the first take-home point is to determine what your goal with research is up front because it can help you pick a project that best suits your needs. So is your goal to complete a project start to finish, get experience with more so data collection and analysis, then maybe having a quality focused study will be just fine to meet those goals. But if you really want to get a publication, then you may need to do more of that project vetting we talked about up front and go with something that you know addresses a gap in the literature and will be a little bit more robust. The second is to make sure a study is feasible. It would be awful, like we mentioned, to get halfway <laughs> through your research project before realizing that you don't have enough patience to show meaningful outcomes or your comparator groups are so imbalanced. So make sure you ask those kinds of questions up front because there are abilities to pull kind of preliminary data lists to get an idea of what you're going to be dealing with. Um, and lastly, like my mentor Scott Miller always says, is design a study with the end in mind. And that's something I will continue to repeat throughout the series probably. But this is a, applicable to every step in the research project, including the step of picking a topic. So have an understanding of what outcome or question you want to answer. Make sure you have an idea of whether the, the research idea that's generated will be able to achieve that. All very, very good points. The, the only other thing I'll add, maybe early, right, for those who aren't at your program, but the importance of not only your research preceptor and mentor, but working with them and communicating, right? They, yes. not mind readers. Now, you know, you don't want to be the person that sent an email every day, right? We don't need daily updates, right? But if you're having big issues, trying to solve them by yourself for like two to three weeks before letting your preceptor know. Sometimes it's a quick fix, right? If it's not, they'll at least know how to get the ball moving. And so uh, communication, communication that's, you'll, you're going to thrive in residency if you're a good communicator. So we'll start with that residency research project. Um, But Sylvia, great tips. I think everyone following along is going to have a, a really awesome a research project to talk about at the end of the year um, and excited to continue working with you. I know everyone else is as well. Um, and thanks so much. It was a pleasure. I'm excited to keep um, going on with this series as well. Thank you. The final partner to introduce conference correspondent, fluid steward, and now faculty liaison, a man who needs no introduction. So guess what? We're not going to give him one right now. <laughs> Anthony Hawkins. So uh, Anthony's already been uh, so generous with his time on the podcast. And in addition to all the help he has done you know, already, um, he's going to help serve as a bridge between the academia and clinical world, um, sharing precepting pearls, education tips and tricks. Um, and honestly, I'm just so excited that, we, that this is official. Yeah, something that um, now can officially and proudly put on my CV. Well, now I you have I know you have referenced at least the episodes you've been on, but yeah, now you have the official title. That's exactly right. Can co-sign on that. Um, now, the reason we're here today, right, is the AJHP article: teaching at the critically ill patient's bedside, linking clinical practice to professional identity. And any anybody that has worked with Anthony knows how hands-on he is. Right. That is just principle one. You are rather than tell me, I need to go see it. Let's go see it. Let's go talk. Let's go do that hands on. And uh, a thing that kind of stands out from this paper, though, um, is it focuses on building our professional identity rather than 
exclusively focusing on like professionalism or discrete knowledge and skills. And I think that's like kind of the unwritten rule, the things that, that mentors teach you, but that isn't necessarily written in paper per se. So, I mean, I got to ask first, what prompted you all to write such an awesome piece? Um, we were, we were doing one of our annual, I guess, um, UGA C3 retreats. And during that, we always include some unstructured time. So I think we were like taking a walk around my neighborhood. We were actually, um, having our retreat at my house. Um, and in some of our unstructured time, Andrea and I were walking kind of separate from the group and just talking about general rotation things. Um, and how part of that discussion was how I integrate going into the patient's room as an expectation and how I model it for students or trainees rather. Um, and then after the retreat, she was driving back home to Augusta and just sent me a random text that said, you know, your, your rotation sounds awesome. I'd probably learn a lot if I took it. So I think we should write about it. Um, and that is how it came to be. Uh, truer words have not been spoken. We would all we would all you learn a whole lot. And as we kind of dive into that paper, before we start, uh, where like, are there any resources or things that you could turn to for like bedside precepting as a critical care emergency medicine pharmacist? Like before this paper, what kind of resources were are or were available? Um, bedside teaching, if you like PubMed that term, you will get a lot of of hit. But that is primarily focused on physicians and how to like conduct or facilitate bedside rounds or teaching or interprofessional care at the bedside because it is its own skill set to facilitate those rounds with the patient and, you know, taking care of them while also integrating teaching without making rounds last five hours um, and also integrating family. So there's a lot of resources with those search terms, bedside teaching. Um, but I think for a pharmacist, if you, you know, there's, there's several papers, I think probably emergency medicine, critical care have published it the best. Um, the pharmacist role in, in codes or the pharmacist role on the stroke team. And so there's some pretty decent literature on a pharmacist role in very specific teams and what their roles are at the bedside or just as a member of that team. Um, but I think there's just so much more to that. I think it's pretty natural that you're going to precept and teach and integrate bedside stuff into those very specific uh, in the trauma bay or RSI, for example. But what about the regular COPD exacerbation with sepsis that's in your MICU or that's in holding in the ED for, you know, alcohol withdrawal or for a, a narc overdose of some kind? So just different things like that. I think it's just a larger variety, um, more expansive that we probably do in practice. We just don't talk about or teach it as much. So why for your practice style, and I guess you would say for your practice style, you believe that it's important for, you know, critical care and and training um, from the pharmacy perspective, but why is bedside teaching and precepting so integral to to what you do? Um, It kind of goes along with the phrase, you know, practice what you preach. And it's part of my practice every day. Um, You know, when I'm on service, And so it is only fair to expect that same, to develop that same practice style um, with, with trainees. And I think a common thing that we tell trainees all the time is you're, you're taking care of a patient, not a computer screen. 
But it really puts truth to that when you get a step away from your computer screen and actually go see a patient. Yep. That's a really good example because I think even simple things like asking, hey, how much oxygen are they getting through their nasal cannula and being able to see where that is? Simple things like that, if you've never done it, you might not know. So for the audience, what's maybe like an example of something where you were able to get a learner to kind of do some um, you were you were doing bedside precepting or teaching and you were able to see a learner kind of make a difference from that kind of scenario. I know you probably have one every single day, but is there one that kind of comes to mind right now? Uh, yeah, great example. Actually, um, it was either yesterday or two days ago, had a fairly young patient come in, status post-cardiac arrest, um, you know, resuscitating the patient on high doses of, of pressors and go in the patient room, look at the flow track, his volume responsiveness, trying to get an idea of, you know, the etiology of the shock. And you grab his foot and it is unbelievably cold to the touch. And so we all know the difference, at least in context, you hear about warm shock and cold shock. Um, and so looking at the numbers, feeling the patient's foot with your hand tangibly, and then you go to rounds and you recommend dibutamine or some other inotrope, you know, and then you go back to the patient's room four hours later or the next day and you grab that same patient's foot and you're like, man, it is like febrile almost. And you really, you, you just the, the tangible experience of cold shock versus warm shock or perfusion. Um, it really, you know, when you talk about knowledge and I just told my learners this the other day, um, you have three main buckets of knowledge and that is your, you know, like basic science, your clinical skill, your clinical knowledge, and then your experience. And so going in the patient's room is just really putting more and more knowledge in that experiential bucket. And the only thing I'd add is, you know, my argument too is, right, that learner is getting more FaceTime with other members of that multidisciplinary team, right? So they're working with that nurse and that's where, hey, you can go help them grab something. And it's amazing what these little things will do to help build those relationships to make life a little bit easier on you, especially when you're a learner, right? And you're not, you're not in one place for, for, you know, months at a time. You're only there for a couple of weeks. So, um, you know, multiple, multiple reasons. Now, you all kind of propose three tenets of, of bedside teaching um, within the article. So um, if you could tell us what those three tenets are and would you say that there is a, a tenant of those that should be at the forefront of our minds, maybe, you know, compared to some of the others, or do you kind of think of them as, as holding equal weight? Um, so just reading it straight off the three tenets, um, integrating patient care with mentored bedside training. And so that is your modeling. And this kind of goes just back to what I said earlier, kind of, you know, that is my practice. I go in the patient's room, you know, even before I turn on my computer, when I get in the unit, I look at the board, I see how many are intubated, you know, that type of thing. And I just make rounds and I get a very quick view of who is the sickest. Um, who's got the most acute things going on, because that's who I'm going to look at first. And that helps me prioritize my day. And so if the learner is working up four patients, I tell them to do the exact same thing. Um, and so, and then part of my workup, again, is going in the patient room, looking at some numbers, and I get a good feel, get a vibe of the room um, while the nurse is in there doing their thing, ask them if there's anything that, you know, happened big overnight or if there's anything I can help them with. And that, to me, really improves the patient care that I am able to provide. 
Um, the second tenet is identifying opportunities for direct patient interaction. Um, and so that's kind of part of the coaching. And that kind of goes really in line with that. Um, if you're in the room, then it's you can identify what are the things that you can do to participate at the bedside. As Because I think when, when trainees come to you to on your rotation in the ICU, they say, oh, well, I'm not real comfortable um, going in the patient's room. My only experience is counseling patients. And their perception of ICU care is everybody's sedated. There's no counseling. So what am I going to do at the bedside? I'm very clueless. And so just the more you go in there, the more comfortable, the more comfortable they're going to feel um, participating, engaging in any of that type of thing. Um, and then third, and I think you kind of hit on this um, a moment ago, is develop professional identity as a bedside clinician. If you're at the bedside, you're going to interact with the nurse. You're going to ask the nurse you know, what is this bag hanging on the side of the bed? Um, is their urine really that brown? No, that is a bowel management system, you know, that type of thing that they may have never heard of before, didn't know existed. Um, so now they're learning from the nurse. Um, you know, the nurse says, hey, I'm fully garbed. Can you go, you know, grab me some flushes? Um, or can you go get me some new towels or a warm linen or, you know, whatever it may be. So then they're able to participate they can run check the tube station to see if the next, you know, norepi and, you know, drip is, has been tubed up or whatever it may be. Um, and then when you go on rounds and you recommend debutamine using the previous example, it is it, it really is shocking to providers that you can say, oh, when I went in the room, the patient's foot was extremely cold to touch that really correlated with a, a cardiac index of 1.4. And I know we just did an echo. It's not in the computer yet, but the preliminary reading, um, the technician said the EF was like 15 to 20%. Boom. Now you have been in the, you've been at the bedside. You felt the patient. You talked to the, the echo, the technician that did the echo. And now you're using that to trans, you know, to manifest as a, as a recommendation on round. And I think that really beefs up your recommendation. Um, the respect that you will develop with the team and the rapport and the trust that they will, you know, developing you over over even if you are only there for you know four or five weeks so another piece within the article is um a section kind of focusing on challenges that can hinder a learner's uh professional identity and i think part of the role of as us of preceptors is to help learners identify and overcome these challenges, right? To help them not get in their own way in a sense. And so what are, what are some ideas or strategies that we can help, that we can help our learners to put them in the best possible place for success? Um, so the, the three challenges that we kind of outlined were role ambiguity, imposter syndrome, and interprofessional dynamics. And I think peeling some of those apart, and I'll be a great example of this. The very first recommendation, I didn't really understand what clinical pharmacy was. I didn't make a lot of direct recommendations as a student. Mm -hmm. My first clinical rotation as a resident in the CT surgery ICU with Chris Pachulo, he'll probably remember this. Mm, my, very my very first recommendation to the team, because they were having difficulty extubating a patient, and they had some like peripheral longstanding or, you know, vague history of alcohol use. And so I was reading a lot. Of, I'm really interested in pathophys. So my first recommendation to the team 
was a large volume paracentesis. <laughs> and it's one of those, and we, and maybe not to that extreme with learners, but I'm sure we've all had a learner that saw a creatinine go from one to four. And the learner says, um, my plan for the day, I want to recommend that we start dialysis, right? That is not, not completely out of our lane, yeah. but it's, it's a little bit out of our lane. There's some things that we can do to get there. And we're also not going to go straight to rounds and recommend a consult to nephrology for dialysis. Um, and so I think that's part of the role ambiguity that we aren't really modeled and coached through what are appropriate types of recommendations. Um, and so I think part of that with trainees, it's important to filter what are their plans to say on rounds so that we can kind of guide some of that, right? We're not going to recommend to extubate the patient. I'm not going to go recommend to the RT to turn the FiO2 down because their PaO2 was 170. I'm going to just watch it and ask the nurse, do you know why that didn't happen? And if you don't know, can you maybe throw some um, a, a passive question to the RT to see if we can make that happen? Um, and then imposter syndrome, and I think imposter syndrome goes hand in hand with professional identity. Um, you don't really know your role. You feel like you don't really belong there, but that's because you haven't developed your professional identity or you're not confident in your professional identity. And so I think as preceptors, if we can really coach and facilitate the, the, the maturing of their professional identity, it will directly impact and kind of, um, alleviate some of that imposter syndrome. And then lastly, interprofessional dynamics. Um, we, we probably have worked with a physician or an uh, advanced practice provider that's a little bit more defensive or guarded of their role on rounds, or maybe even a medical resident or a fellow, depending on the type of institution you're at. And no matter what you say on rounds as a recommendation, they are going to get defensive because they think you're stealing their thunder. Um, or if you work in a community hospital, for example, and your intensivist was also on call last night and they're in a very grumpy mood. Um, so some of those, inter you know, the way that I try to coach some of my trainees through those dynamics, we, we get a new intensivist every Monday. And so as soon as I find out who the intensivist is, I'll tell the trainees, hey, they like to start rounds around 930. They wear their emotions on their sh on their sleeves. Um, sometimes they can be a little touchy or, you know what, they are extremely pharmacy friendly. You don't have to give them too many details um, in your recommendations unless they ask because they'll typically go for them. And so you just give them a, a heads up on how to, how to you know, the, what's the vibe around going to be, and then they can just go ahead and start off on, on a good foot. That's a, I think that's the professional way of saying a quote that I love is, it doesn't matter how smart you are. If people don't like you, your job's going to be hard. And if you don't have those relationships, right, your job's going to be hard no matter what role, how smart you are, et cetera. So uh, I love that. I love that. Now, you and I, right, we're both preceptors, and, and we've focused a lot specifically on preceptors and what we can do to help facilitate this growth, rightly so, right, two-way street. But how do learners hold themselves accountable in this same scenario, or how can we hold learners accountable? Um, I, I think you can build in expectations for the learners. And so for me, my expectation for some of those things, I ex whatever patients you're responsible for, it is an absolute expectation that you go in that patient's room every, every day before rounds as part of your workup. 
I also have the expectation that you talk to a member of the team as part of your pre-rounds. I do not want you to come to me during our pre-rounds discussion and say, um, you know, the, uh, the muca mist is Q4 hours. And I think maybe we can, we can turn that back to Q8 or Q12 because we want them to improve their sleep. Or I, I just don't know if their mucus um, production is, is, is resolved. That's a conversation you should have, have had with the RT already, or at least before rounds um, so that you can build some of that up um, or with a nurse or, or whatever it may be. But again, part of that as a preceptor, how can we support and encourage that? If you're a trainee and you're coming into a new place every five weeks and you don't know anyone in there and you are also don't have a professional identity in the ICU setting, you are completely out of your wits. And so I try to play wingman for my trainees with everybody in the unit. So I get the learners to present like an autobiography type thing at the very beginning of the rotation, your personality, your hobbies, those types of things. And I try to find, I'll try to find common ground and connect them with different nurses um, or RTs or whatever. Oh, I know you like fantasy football and this RT is also in a fantasy football league. And I will create a conversation around that so that you can develop that relationship. Um, and if nothing else, I will use Wordle as an example. And so a lot of the people in my ICU, we talk about Wordle every day and, you know, have you done it yet? And how, how quick did you get it? That type of thing. And so I will try to find that common ground that's not medical related just to foster some of those um, non-professional discussions, if you will. And for the listeners, you can't see here, but there was some air quotes there. Uh, you're, that's the secret. That's the secret is let's try to not talk everything medical and getting building some sort of relationship, whether it's, you know, likes, you know, interests, hobbies, all those things. Uh, great, great advice. I just wanted to, to interrupt and completely co-sign. Now, this is also, Anthony and I, we've always had this thought. And, and we will, when we're out with a group of pharmacists, uh, you'll know if you're with us because we will stop work talk very quickly. And the, the people that work with me know I could small talk a wall if I needed to. So being able to have those shared interests with people really does make your life a whole lot easier because um, you're able to get that relationship and then work on it from the professional side. So I'm sorry for interrupting you, but I wanted to, to add that little piece. Yeah, and if you do catch Nick or I, or especially both of us together at a conference, um, and we're engaging in conversation, um, we have a special game that we like to play to specifically avoid work talk. Um, so if you catch us at a conference, we're certainly happy to share those um, those details. You, If you catch us and you call us out, we won't enjoy the punishment. We'll just say that. <laughs> <laughs> So what are, what are, um, in what, what advice would you kind of give? Because I think there are some preceptors that they, they model and do some of these things, but they, they don't necessarily know how to like teach or precept it. So if you're a student who is in one of these things and maybe you're not having expectations, like on your rotation where you go, you need to go into the rooms and things, what, like what advice would you give to learners to maybe push themselves or things? Could they set like, like, you know, you need to enter X rooms or what are, what are things that, that they could do to, to try to ensure, even if they're not in a rotation that's emphasizing that, that we are pushing that um, from a learner's perspective. 
Um, I think two things that come about right offhand, you know, learners are always told, oh, you, you better email your preceptor two or three weeks ahead of your rotation. See, you know, the dress code, the parking, all the other things. Um, you could specifically in that email tell them that your goal for the rotation is to get more comfortable at the bedside. And that immediately creates shared ownership for your learning, for your learning goals. Again, speaking, you know, to the trainees here. Um, also understanding that some preceptors also were not modeled and coached and didn't have those opportunities when they were trainees. So they may also feel uncomfortable doing that. Um, and so I think showing some from the, tr for the trainees, show some grace to your preceptors um, so that, because they need to feel comfortable set, telling you that they don't know or are not comfortable with something. And that may be a reason that they avoid doing it. Um, for the preceptors out there that may feel less comfortable, I would say um, to to create your own experience. Like you, while you are the preceptor, when you don't, when you have a time without trainees, make yourself the trainee. Um, I do what I, I do what I call share days on my rotation, where the trainees spend a half a day or a day with a nurse or a respiratory therapist, dietitian, depending on what their goals, previous experiences are, et cetera. Um, but you could you could create a share day for yourself, right? And you try to spend 30 minutes um, with a nurse during their morning assessment. That may mean coming in 30 minutes before your shift starts or maybe during your lunch break or just building it into your normal activities um, or just having a little bit of humility and being okay asking questions at the bedside. Let the nurse tell you what these things are or ask a respiratory therapist. I mean, just this morning, I learned what a nipometer was and that there was a difference in checking NIFS, which is negative inspiratory force. There's a way to calculate it on the ventilator. And then there's a special contraption, a nipometer that you can do separately. And the respiratory therapist on rounds yesterday used the ventilator and we did not extubate the patient. And then she, uh, the respiratory therapist today did it with this nipometer and we extubated them and they were very different numbers. And I got a new appreciation, a new piece of knowledge, um, you know, that I can use going forward when I hear, you know, when we're talking about the NIFs and the weaning parameters and stuff on rounds. And I can ask more questions um, and have a little bit just better foundational knowledge for some of the context of those conversations. So I think just putting yourself out there, either as a trainee or uh, or even as a preceptor to make yourself more comfortable. Uh, we we both got share day ideas from our uh, critical care RPD. Shout out to Stacy Campbell who started a lot of this. Um, and so, if you want examples of share days, definitely feel free to reach out to uh, Anthony or I. Anthony at I am a Hawkins and then at pharmacy to dose, we would be happy to share those examples. To me, it's one of the it's it's one of my favorite days of the rotation because um, a I think you'd be shocked. Um, you know you. First things first, you you, you want to make sure that you're picking the right nurse and respiratory therapist. I guess we do need to like, you you don't want to just blindly pick somebody. Almost every unit has someone that's capable, can talk through things. And A, they're going to love talking through their day and explaining things from their perspective, right? But then B, the amount of things that you learn that we talk about every single day on rounds that are not taught to you in pharmacy school, like, oh, what, what do you mean is the A-line reading right? Or, oh, it's it's done. Like, wait, what? What do you mean? Like, so all those things, like, we just take for granted. There's a lot of things, like, with that. So uh, another plug for the share day. I, I absolutely love that. Um, and, I mean, the 
the article itself, I, I encourage everyone to go through and read it. If you precept, if you're if you're a learner, anything in between. Um, again, it's teaching at the critically ill patient's bedside, linking clinical practice to professional identity. Of course, we have the the senior author here, Anthony Hawkins, with us. But you know, he mentioned um, Andrew Sakura as well. No stranger to the pod um, is also a a co author. Um, so great, great knowledge from I, I learned something every single time I talk to one of you. So required reading for everybody. Um, and I'm really excited, Anthony, to have you as an official partner. And I think the uh, the friends of the pod are all going to love some of the things we have cooked up for the for the following year. So I'll give a brief shout out to the first author on this paper, Asilvo, who is he? Well, he was at the time that we wrote the paper a P four student in Augusta with Andrea. Um, he'll be a resident, I believe, at the Ohio State this coming year. Um, and also um, a hopeful shout out: um, we've got a paper under review with AJHP in the New Practitioner Forum, specifically for new practitioners to develop a share day. Um, and I've got the respiratory therapist and the nurse that helped that did those share days um, with me and, and some other colleagues to give kind of some structure, some backbone and some considerations to develop it. So hopefully that'll be an AJHP in the next two to three months. You keep helping us that you, you all in the UGA C3 keep helping us with these awesome resources and publications. We are certainly grateful. Um, take care down in Georgia, my friend, and we will certainly be talking to you soon. Great. Thanks a lot, Nick. These are four of the the best pharmacists out there, and I'm so very lucky and grateful for uh, the chance to work with all of them. So reach out to me, reach out to them. Uh, let us know what you think. Uh, Twitter or Instagram at pharmacy to dose, TO to dose, or via email, pharmacy to dose at gmail.com. In the episode description where you'll typically find the reference list, what will be there is the link to the Google form. Remember, 2023 Pharmacy to Dose Awards. Nominations end Friday, June 23rd. No CVs. It couldn't be easier. And until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose the Critical Care Podcast. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based care in clinical practice. So check out READ for easy access to research personalized for you. Calculate for over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools and learn to earn CME online in minutes per day. Try them today at qxmd.com slash apps. Again, that is qxmd.com slash A-P-P-S.